Hey friends, this is Boss Barista. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. Uh, my name is Justin Phillips. I am the restaurant industry reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. I, uh, and I also run this uh, restaurant blog called Inside Scoop that you know basically talks about uh, openings and closings and kind of trend pieces. Um, I do a lot of our uh, predictions for the year, um, our you know biggest openings. Um, and then you know I also, over the last two years, have done a lot of stories about uh, race in uh, the restaurant industry. I've done, um, you know, stories on minority businesses, and you know, as you know, with the four row stuff, uh, sexual harassment stories, investigative pieces. So it kind of runs the gamut. But um, my official title is just restaurant industry reporter, and uh, I guess just a lot of stuff falls under that. So. I mean, beyond like what you've written about Four Barrel, like your reporting in general is just absolutely fantastic. Like I love seeing wow, like really nice. <laughs> no, I just love seeing like the perspectives that you have about the industry in general because it's not just like this milk toast sort of so and so is opening, so and so is closing. Like you two take like a really critical lens about like who is opening businesses, why are certain businesses shutting down, and really like focusing on like POC and minority owned businesses, which is incredible. Right. Um, That's very, yeah. Yeah. Cool. I, I appreciate that. That's very, very nice. Thank you. I mean, I, I feel like we're just going to like, <laughs> like just be flustered let's this just, time. <laughs> let's just keep this circle going where I compliment you, you compliment me. It'll be an hour of this and then that's people are going to love it. <laughs> right. Um, right. But let's, let's, so let's go backwards to, um, to when, like, before even, like, the four-barrel story broke, like, how how did this kind of, like, fall to you? Like, how did you find out about it? So, um, I think, and part of this, too, like, I have to give a lot of credit to, uh, I have to give all the credit, honestly. Like, like I said this before, the the people who want to tell these stories, right? Like, you have to, not only do you have to be willing to, uh, to relive specific traumas, um, especially if you're a... a core part of the story but you also have to be uh you have to be trusting in that someone will take your story and not mangle it and that's you know that's a tough thing to do uh nowadays to trust somebody to tell a specific story um or a specific experience and not kind of uh muddle the lines of it i suppose so i think part of it was just some of the stories that i'd written um before that like you know I'll, i'll take like you mentioned, like some of the stories have a critical lens on specific topics, uh, specific issues, um, you know, uh, in the workforce or um, just making sure, uh, just writing about work environments, issues people may have. And I think that kind of built a background for me. And so individuals that uh, were associated with Forborough and wanted to tell their story might have felt a little bit more comfortable because they were able to look up past stories that I had done that it may not have been investigative uh, sexual assault stories, but it was enough content to make them feel comfortable to talk to me. And um, yeah, so that's kind of how it began. And usually with these stories, like I said, you know, earlier, they it starts with a whisper. Like you hear a rumor of this and you're like, okay, that's interesting. You make note of it uh, and you circle back and, you know, you might ask one or two people about it and they concur and give you more details and they tell you who else you can talk to. And next thing you know, you're kind of in a pool of sources and everyone has stories that corroborate, you know, an experience or an environment. And that's essentially what happened to four, to, uh, with the four barrel story, but those sources as well, 
we're extremely proactive in wanting to get this story out. Like, you know, I, I don't deserve uh, any of the credit. I'm, I'm glad they're, they were content with the story and I'm glad I was able to write about it and, and, and share their, you know, share experiences and, and kind of figure out what was happening there. But they were very, um, they were courageous. They were strong. They were really smart. And, uh, and it was, all I had to do was be there. I just had to lend in the ear. So from story to kind of like going backwards to like the first time you heard about it, like how long had you been working on this story before you broke it? Uh, it was a couple of months, you know, it goes from, and, and these conversations, uh, I think people should know that they don't, um, sometimes they'll happen day after day and, you know, you're meeting new sources all the time. Sometimes you'll speak to people, uh, you'll do a little bit of research on your own, like visit these places, reach out to people, and it'll be kind of slow for a couple of weeks and pick it back up. But it's a constant, you can't, you can't force stories like this. So it, it, it took a couple of months just to, um, just to kind of gather all the gossip, kind of, uh, run it by people, then hear from the individuals that were, uh, that were involved with Four Barrel and, uh, fact check it and produce the, the first piece. And, um, what kind of helped bolster that piece as well, though, is that the, uh, the individuals that, that I spoke with were so coordinated and just, um, just, I, I don't know. I, I keep saying courageous. I wish I had, I had, I had a different word for describing it, but um, they were. When that story came out, they also uh, they also filed a uh, a lawsuit as well. And so, um, you know, I, I think that bolstered the story too. And 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 again, that has little to do with me. That's just that's all the sources. That's that's just them. So, I mean, we have like a pretty like okay read on what the coffee community thought just because that's like the world that I'm in. But like, what was right. it like for you putting this story out to like the San Francisco audience and even like a national audience? It's interesting because the the response came back immediately. And, um, you know, when the, when the story went live uh, in the middle of the day, I remember locally uh, people that I know that didn't know that uh, I was doing the story, but knew about the company um, were actually corroborating stories that were like uh, accounts that were in the story. So it was, it was almost a, um, it was a lot of, how would I put this? There were a lot of people that said, that they had been waiting for a story like this. They had known about the uh, the environment at the alleged environment at the uh, at Four Barrel. They had known about um, you know some of the incidents that I reported on, and they um, yeah they were just like you know we expected to see a story like this, and we're we're glad a story like this came out. How did you approach follow up? Because something that I thought was really great about your reporting is that it didn't just end at one story. Like you really tracked like exactly what the owners of four barrel were saying, and then kind of like the actual response from the community. And like, it didn't just end like there was more. Right. So like, how right. did you approach follow up and like, what were you looking for? Well, it's, uh, you know, as, as soon as the story came out, uh, four barrel, uh, the owners reacted and, um, you know, there were name changes and, and so forth and, and, uh, business dropped off and they, closed projects and consolidated and, and, you know, things of that nature. But 
um, mostly good journalism is one that uh, that's persistent, I guess. And it's really easy for publications to kind of uh, do these big headline stories and then, you know, get those readers and then just let it go. But for us, you know, we almost operate, you know, for, for our food section, um, this, the Bay Area is our stopping grounds. Like we should be the first to report on big issues, to break stories. And so it only, there was no other option, basically. You know, it only made sense to just keep an eye on what exactly was happening, what was changing. There were, you know, there were promises made um, by the ownership after the first story came out. So we know, so I knew what to look for. Like at some point, this is going to happen, or at some point, this is going to happen. And so just staying on top of it, you know, and then consistently asking questions, talking to, you know, their, at one point they had a PR team, talking to their PR team, emailing with the owners, talking with the owners, talking with former employees. And it's just, after the first story came out, I think there was kind of like a bubble um, of past employees who still wanted to speak. And, uh, and there was a uh, responsibility on our part just to, to keep, you know, getting their questions answered. I think my favorite byline that you wrote is four barrel is back. It's name change lasted 11 days. Yeah, that was a surprisingly short pivot. I will not, you know, I'll openly admit that. But I mean, and that's one of those stories that just falls in with, uh, with kind of um, the the reporting that we do. Like some, you could, it's silly to go in to, uh, to an investigative piece thinking that you'll know the outcome, right? Because that, it nothing ever goes exactly how you think it'll go. You might assume that, oh, well, uh, you know, if I was in this situation, I would probably make this decision or, you know, I've seen other companies do this, but every situation is so completely different that, um, you know, as it happens, you just kind of report on it. And I think our, our headline kind of reflected that, uh, that surprise probably. Had you ever done investigative reporting like this before? Yeah, well, maybe not uh, not into sexual harassment claims, but before um, I came to the Chronicle, I was uh, in Louisiana, and so I used to write about the. Uh, the uh, there's a oil industry down south, and um, so I'd write about a lot of uh, international companies and uh, local companies, and just these billion dollar projects. And when those things happen in those cities, there's uh, ultimately you know lawsuits that get filed, complaints, there's business dealings that we have to, that I had to keep track of. There's uh, a lot of, um, yeah, it's just a, a lot of a, a court kind of tracking. And so being really meticulous about reporting and kind of uh, that, uh, I guess that day-to-day kind of investigative look into things, I, I had done that before. So, but this was, you know, nothing, nothing compares, honestly, to having done the story. Like, this, this was something completely different for me. Something that, like, I think people in the copy community maybe are a little confused about is, like, how, how to bring up concerns of, like, harassment or even just, like, wrongful, like, ro- like wrongdoing in the workplace. I think people see, like, what happened at Four Barrel and they're like, wow, like, this got so much coverage and rightfully so. Um, and I know for me at Boss Barista, like I get emails all the time about people yeah. saying that like yeah. they're either experiencing something similar. And I wonder right. like how, like 
how can someone like reach out to you? Like, how can someone like share a story? Cause I mean, you had to do some, I'm imagining you had to do tons of fact checking, like tons of like right, legal work. Right. Like how does that yeah. process kind of look? Well, it's, yeah, no, it's, it's difficult. It's a, it's a very tedious process, but for people that, that want to tell those stories, you know, I, it would be ignorant for me to say, oh, it's simple. Just, you know, find a, you know, find a, an outlet that you trust or a reporter that you trust, have a conversation with them, see what they say. But it's never, it's never that simple. These, everyone that, that spoke out about um, Four Barrel technically had uh, something at stake, you know, whether it's actually their employment, you know, whether they worked for the company and were worried about getting fired or they faced, um, you know, or they, you know, a lot of them were concerned about backlash, you know, in the community, people who may not have agreed with them sharing their story. Like there's, they had so much to risk and, uh, and, you know, I, I can't commend them enough for, uh, for speaking out about it. And so, you know, I, I would love to be able to tell people, you know, it's the, the easiest thing to do is just to go talk about it and try to, to spread awareness. But I feel like each case is, is, individual like you you know you have to everybody's different you know and if they i would say if they choose to go do it then and speak out about it then you know more power to them and you know make sure their story is told the right way and make sure that the 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 reporter who hears it you know takes it serious and and does the do you know does the work does their due diligence when it comes to reporting and fact checking but um you know, I know it's not easy. Like I, I, I'm completely aware that I, it's, that's why I, I can't speak highly enough of the individuals that I spoke with. Yeah. I got to speak to a couple of people kind of in the midst of it too. And I was yeah. so blown away by like how, how, how often they were able to tell and retell the story. Right. And it's, yeah, it's incredibly painful. What I'm is, sure you probably heard it a hundred times. Yeah. Oh, so like what, what did, and I'm always interested in that. Like, what did, what did you guys hear? Like, that's something. Yeah. What, what did you guys hear? So when this broke, that kind of gave us the green light to go forward. So at Boss Barista, like we kind of went like vigilante, like we went like, <laughs> well, cause we were like, well, we can like right, the facts right. are out here. There's this lawsuit. We, yeah. we stuck to the facts and we were like, this, this has to end. And we tried to be like, hold we tried to be as like accountable as possible. So we had like this whole thing about divestment. We were like, okay, if Jody yeah, and Tyler are saying, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, if the Jody and Tyler are saying that they ha- they're going to divest, let's set a date for them. So we had this whole divest by February 15th. Obviously they didn't that. do that. They uh-huh. are still part of it. And that was right. something I was wondering about with you is that like, how do you, how do you take like this like professional thing that you do, like telling mm-hmm. a story and like being a journalist, but also like, does it, ever feel like a personal like wait like I wrote the story and like broke this news and like shit has not changed <laughs> it's so you know uh, for to be to I feel like quality journalists uh have empathy you know it's these uh, reporters are regular people um who if they hear stories about someone suffering or an injustice um you know they'll be moved to a certain capacity to, to say that's not, um, a, a fact, you know, be, it just be a lie. Like it, these are individuals who tell stories. And so, um, I think for me, you have to, for me, you have to compartmentalize that, um, 
you know, just being a normal human being, hearing these stories, you know, having to speak to people who, you know, relive trauma and having to retell it, you have to take that and put that next to um, just doing your job really well. And so for me, that consisted of, you know, just hearing these stories. But um, if I write a story that includes comments from a company vowing to do, you know, X, Y, and Z, then as a reporter, you know, compartmentalizing just the job itself, you know, it's my responsibility to go back and check and see if is this actually happening. And, um, you know, it just comes down to just kind of just doing your job, basically. That's that's all it came down to. But do you ever feel like, I don't know, like personally kind of like, hey, hold on a second. Like, why are there people still in this place? Like, because I feel that. Yeah. I feel angry. Like when people tell me that people still go to Forbear all the time. Like it makes me personally Oh, like, you're not the yeah. Mortified. You're not. I I hear that all the time from people. Like, and I and I see it online too, where you know people are extremely upset. I th- I think one of the things that it brings to mind for me is just uh, you know I, I look at the the how do I put this? I look at the Bay Area consumer um, differently than I may have uh, a couple of years ago. Um, you know, I realize now that what may be, um, I realize now that what may be a deal breaker for some people, you know, uh, uh, if a company is accused of something, they may not frequent that business because of that. But there's an entire population out here that that won't interfere with where they do business. And that's totally, you know, that's, that's totally, that's up to them. Right. But there is a huge demographic in the Bay Area that, um, you know, we may write stories about, uh, you know, harassment or, you know, toxic workplaces or whatever, or, or you know, a, a business not paying its employees and getting sued. But, um, yeah, it just made me realize that the, the Bay Area customer base is just really um, just different, I suppose. And, I, you know, there's a thousand re- reasons why that may be, but that, that's kind of what it made me think of. Yeah, I think uh, I was just uh, thinking about this because I had a conversation with somebody about Charlie Hallowell, who right. was, you know, one of the owners at, not one of the owners, the owner of Pizzaiolo. And it's like right. kind of ambiguous if he's there or not. Like I know boot and shoe has been sold. Um, right. and the other boot and shoe that they were, um, going to open, isn't going to open any longer. And it just like, I was just in Oakland about two weeks ago and I like had to walk by Pizzaiolo to see if there were people there. Like it was like, I had, I had you to see. Had to. Yeah. And, yeah. No, and I there were, I get it. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, the day that, that, uh, so Tara Duggan wrote that story, uh, and the day that her initial story, uh, broke, uh, I went by Pizzaiolo as well, and it was it was packed. As a matter of fact, so the story, you know, the that that huge sexual harassment piece that she did, um, I actually saw a couple that was on a date there, and so it it's interesting to see the response, I guess. And so you know, um, and also you know, Charlie Hollowell has a uh, has a business in uh, Berkeley as well uh, called Western Pacific, and the first couple of days that it was open, like that had a crowd as well. So yeah, it's just interesting. One thing that like has been kind of bugging me and I don't know if you can like 
verify this or not is that mm-hmm. I've never been able to actually like find evidence that Jeremy Tooker is not actually still an owner of Four Barrel. Right. So this is one of those situations where as a reporter, all, all I can do is, uh, you know, report on the information that I gather. And then if I can fact check that with other information, or, or if I can, um, if I can compare that with other valid information that I have, that I have, then I can point out discrepancies. But, um, you know, when, and people ask me, ask me this a lot as well. All I can report is what the owners of Four Barrel told, you know, tell me. And it's, you know, that he's divested, that uh, Jeremy divested, um, you know, before the, the lawsuit came out and, you know, this is where they stand. But unless, you know, I can compare that with actually getting a copy of their financial records, then the only thing that could be done fairly as a journalist is just report what the ownership says. I love like you kind of breaking down like the sort of like the parameters of journalism, because that's something that like I grapple with as as someone who writes for Barista magazine. Like obviously we're not we're not a news publication. We're more of a trade publication. Right. But it's difficult to like it's difficult for me just because I have this this podcast and I you know say wild stuff all the time but <laughs> like it's 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 interesting to go back to barista magazine and be like I I have to use like the stuff in front of me and I can't it's not my job to make an argument it's my job to present information right. and I wonder like for people like because you know a lot of coffee people don't get to talk to journalists like how do you like how yeah. do you craft it? How do you craft that narrative? Like, how do you craft something for people so that it's like, here are the facts in like a really like manner of fact way, but at the same time, by like still have like some perspective? Because that's what I love about your writing is that it feels like it does have a perspective, but still presents a very clear story that doesn't feel biased. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. That that's very nice. Uh, let me also say this though, before so we can start this circle of uh, patting each other on the back again. <laughs> the uh, what you do there are and there were plenty of times like over the last year or so where i see you know what you do is kind of like superhero work right like you get to be that um you get to start these conversations with a with a direct focus and call out issues and do it just uh freely and in a whip smart way and just succinctly and uh be really ambitious about it. And I'm telling you, there are times where I'm just like, man, that's, this is it, man. Like this is, this is good work. Like this is amazing work. I'm going to go hide right now. So keep talking. <laughs> but. <laughs> but so for, for in journalism though, we do, um, yeah, like we do have standards to uphold. We, um, you know, like even, even in talking about four barrel, like you still have to use the connotation that, you know, it's, alleged this and alleged that just because that's what fair reporting is. And so the, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because you have to, there is a a structure to, to work within, but if you do, if you work well within that structure, then uh, you've created a story that people can project, uh, what they feel onto that text. Like what you've laid out are the facts and you've 
laid out the facts that can't be argued. You've gained comments. You've used quotes. You have a full, well-rounded story. And so what people do is that they'll take that story and what they know, you know, outside of the story, whatever information that they have might paint, you know, their feelings that they project onto that story. Or it might be people that completely disagree with it, you know, before they even read it and then they'll read it and then project those feelings onto it. But a good story will allow that to happen. And it just so happens that, you know, the four bro work that we've, you know, that I've done, that our staff has done this year did, you know, fair and balanced stories that allowed people to kind of uh, project what they wanted to uh, onto each other. I want to know more about you. I want to know how you got into journalism. Uh, you know, I was trying not to take math in college <laughs> and, uh, cause I was bad at it. And then next thing you know, no, I, um, how, how did I, what, what happened? I don't know. The, uh, honestly, I've always, I've always like, you know, I've always liked writing. I've always liked, uh, I've always loved journalism. I remember like way back in high school, um, actually this might date my age, but, uh, so we used to have this thing called Channel One that we used to watch before class. It was like our morning announcements in high school. And like Anderson Cooper was, it was like a young Anderson Cooper on there and a bunch of other people that like went on CNN. And I remember being in high school being like, you know what? That's kind of cool, man. Like getting to tell those stories and travel and write stuff, feel like you're making a difference, like you have a purpose. And I think that kind of, uh, that kind of stuck with me. And um, granted, like, you know, there were, I went through different routes of what I wanted to be. Like there was a time where I was like, I'm going to be a sports reporter. That's what I want to do. And then there were times where I was like, I'm going to be a features writer. And then I'm going to be a food writer. One day I'll be a critic. And then, you know, luckily uh, you wind up at the Chronicle and you kind of have like a, you know, a mix of all those things. And yeah, no, I'm just, uh, I'm super lucky. But it all started with me not wanting to take math. So listen to that kids. (laughs) <laughs> don't take math classes guys Get yeah you don't need math math is stupid no I it's taught, not no yeah. i taught middle school math and science when um when i first oh. graduated from uh college you and, are uh, you are a hero <laughs> god help me i was not i was like they need to get me out of here i'm not doing a good job this is not for me <laughs> this is this is a hard work no i was just i was just much i was like way too young to do that they shouldn't have 22 yeah. year olds teaching <laughs> 13 year olds right out of college. I can do it now. Now I, yeah. now when I talk to children, I'm like, you're a kid. Like, it's yeah, hard. you're right. It's hard. Right. I get well, it. Well, it's like when we have to talk to, um, you know, I, uh, a while ago, I went to talk to a, uh, grad school class at Berkeley. And, um, sometimes, you know, we'll speak to, uh, high school kids that tour the, the newsroom and stuff. And a lot of questions that I'll get will be like, well, how'd you end up into this? How'd you end up in journalism? And, um, you know, like journalism is different now. Newsrooms are uh, are pushing to be more diverse. Uh, you know, some more successful than others, obviously. But there, it's not. Uh, there's when, when I first started. There's a time where you know most newsrooms were populated by uh, older reporters uh, of the same demographic who had been doing it for like you know two decades and stuff, just like grizzled veteran reporters, and excuse me. And, uh, now, um, you know, it's shifted a little bit, you know, journalism isn't the, uh, newspapers, honestly, aren't the, uh, aren't, obviously they aren't as successful as they used to be, but, you know, and people also find their, um, news through 
different outlets. So the demographics in the newsrooms have changed, but because they've changed, they've also allowed younger people to have a chance to get in and tell stories of the city that they live in or, you know, of the country that they live in. And so I think I crept in on the back end of that where I just kind of got, um, you know, because when I started, it was around like 2008, 2009 during the recession. And so newspapers were laying off a ton of people. And coming out of that is when they started to change. They started to hire younger, um, maybe, you know, cheaper in, in certain aspects. But I feel like there's uh, a benefit to that because it gave, you know, young people a chance. And so I, long story short, I feel like I got swept up into that and just ended up where I am. It does seem like the Chronicle specifically is is really looking to like make make food writing especially really like relevant and interesting. Like the fact that you guys have Ahut Soleil who oh, yeah. um, was on my show a so, couple, couple weeks ago. I know. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, no, she's uh God, she's unbelievable. Jeez, she is a powerhouse for sure. But it's like, you know, and that has to do with uh, with some of the leadership at the newspaper, right? Like they um, they want you have to at some point somebody at the top has to start thinking differently and thinking like we should change the way we look at certain things. We should you know we maybe this person might not be the traditional fit for us uh, for a, a normal newspaper, but you know we're going to be different. We're going to give them a shot, and then it ends up working out. And so. Uh, I think the Chronicle has been um, pretty progressive in that fact, honestly. Like, I don't know any, and I, and I, you know, if I'm forgetting somebody, then that's on me. But um, I don't know any black restaurant industry reporters for newspapers, uh, like staff writers, right? I know a ton of freelance people, but you know, some the Chronicle made a push to diversify their camp. And that's how I got here, like luck of the draw. And then, um, and then, you know, we have a uh, a critic who you know had been here for three decades and writing, and you know had a structure to what he did. And now, you know, with a chance to step back, we hire somebody who is nothing like who we've had before, who has incredible insight, who is a phenomenal writer, and genuinely could change how we cover restaurants in the Bay area. It's just, it's, it's super exciting. Like it's a, uh, it's a cool time to be, um, to be in journalism in Northern California for sure. You kind of uh, dovetail into my next question, which is going to be like, what excites you right now? Like, what are you interested in reporting on? What is exciting about like the restaurant industry as a whole? Like, I think that, it's interesting to like compare the restaurant industry like it, juxtaposed to like other like Hollywood oh, or anything sure. like that, just because yeah. it seems like we have so many bigger issues, but they're so personal because you interact with people who make your food every day. You interact with people who serve your food every day. And it's not like these, you know, Hollywood stars over here talking about me too. It's like 30 people at Pizzaiolo that you probably knew. Like, right, right, right. For sure. Yeah, no, it's, um, so what am I, what am I, okay. So what am I excited about? Right. That was a big question. That was a yeah, lot. <laughs> no, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. This gives us a ton to talk about. So what am I excited about? Um, the thing that gets me, uh, what I'm excited about is that our work can cross over into me doing a podcast with you. Right. 
like having an open conversation about um, about the industry itself, about issues, and that just tells me that you know it's journalism is really unique now. Like we, this is uh, this is just you know, granted, like podcasts are more uh, you know common now, but this even if they were like you know, 15 years ago, this wouldn't have happened. Like we would, there would have been some gap where the newsroom probably wouldn't have done, you know, been like, no, we have to stay in this lane. We're not going to do this. But like, I get excited now that, you know, you can hit me up and then we can chat and have these conversations. And it just shows me that, um, you know, rest, the industry reporting now is, is completely different. And so that leads into me just, be, you know, being excited about having freedom to tell different stories. Like there's no, you know, there's no game plan anymore. Like there's no blueprint for what's, uh, for what's standard journalism. You just do great stories. And, you know, it are, you know, there are days where it feels like it's limitless in our newsroom for like ideas that we want to come up with stuff that we want to follow issues that we find. Like it's a, um, it's a, I don't know. It's in journalism. It's like a fearlessness that, at least in our newsroom, that's really cool, you know? And so going into this coming year, I'm just excited about that. I feel like there are chances to tell amazing stories, give um, strength to voices that might not have been heard before. Like, uh, you know, getting off the in- investigative stuff for a second, like we just came out with um, a list for, and if I'm rambling, just cut me off. But No, you're amazing. Okay. <laughs> if, uh, you know, we came out with a list with like our best, uh, restaurant openings in the Bay area. And I remember like a while ago, um, that list was kind of static. Like it would have looked the same as it did, you know, even though they're new restaurants, it looked the same as it did the year before. But this time, you know, we had, you know, we focused an entire year without even realizing it on like this enormous Filipino cuisine movement that was happening in the Bay area. And so then when we you know, when we sat down and I talked about places that I really liked and that I wanted to add, you know, we had multiple Filipino restaurants on it. You know, there is a, um, a taqueria that opened in the design district in uh, San Francisco that, you know, it happened super quiet. But we've been writing about this uh, restaurateur, this chef for a long time and, you know, small little increments. And it's like, hey, look what happened. This place is absolutely amazing. So it's, you know. It's uh, it's more colorful. It's diverse. It's just, I don't know. I'm just excited. I'm more excited, I guess, to be a part of it than anything else. Like this is something that this restaurant industry is something I w- I would want to cover and be a part of. Now, that's all the good stuff. The, <laughs> the bad stuff is, you know, uh, a lot a lot of the issues are foundational like for a long time like the restaurant industry itself was kind of one of those um band of pirate kind of band of pirates kind of landscapes right where you know oh man it's wild on the line like you know our there are no rules in our kitchen you know we do this our chefs talk to us like that the employees interact like that or you know ownership treats his employees like this and so it happened so long that it just became uh, the norm. It was like unchecked norm. And now we have people that speak out about it. And so you can literally see uh, the industry shift. And, uh, oh my God. So like there was a point, um, I remember, oh God, what year was this? 2016? I, I, I can't remember. I wrote it like a, 
uh, a story about like the crossover between politics and restaurants, right? And how, um, you know, the Trump campaign and how, you know, that affected restaurateurs, whether or not they wanted to have signs that, you know, in their restaurants, like supporting, you know, like just basically stuff that like supported immigrant labor and or maybe, you know, supported Barack Obama or something like that. And they were just really nervous to do that. Like, you know, because you were in San Francisco, we have a huge uh, tourism economy. So they were like, you know, we don't want to chase off people that could um, could spend money in our restaurant. Right. We want to be neutral. Like you come in, don't worry about anything else. Just, eat, you know, eat food, have a good time. Don't forget about, you know, forget about everything else. Now that um, a, a, a perspective and a uh, narrative and uh, a political direction these things are built into some restaurants and these restaurants are still wildly successful. And so I think that's, that's an amazing thing to see change like over the last uh, couple of years. So, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's, it's just a cool time, I guess. What do you, what do you read in the morning? Like what's your go-to oh my like, God, news I'm, sources? I'm going to be honest. So in the morning before I come to work, I get on gossip sites. I don't even. I don't even check news at first. <laughs> My first hour straight up spent in the morning is reading like celebrity gossip stuff. I get, it's like junk food, right? Like if you wake up in the morning, be like, I'm gonna eat hella pancakes <laughs> this morning. That's kind of what I'll get down to do. Be like, all right, I'm just gonna clean the slate, do some junk, and then figure, you know, and then figure it out. Then as soon as I do that, um, I definitely like on my commute uh, to work. Um, I'll see what I missed the night before. I'm always on Twitter. I'm always on social media, like lurking on stories, basically. I'll see what news outlets have done, big stories. And uh, I'll see what we've done as well. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of a, it's funny because in journalism, you'll do a story, say you do a story one day, and you're like, you know what? I killed that story. That was amazing. And, you know, it had the, it had an impact. People are talking about it. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to do a story that somehow, like, uh, say it's a political story and it changes some uh, ordinance in the city or something like that, then you're like, okay, that's great. But then the next day starts. And so you're back to ground zero and you have to find something else to cover. And so when I come in, you know, when I wake up in the morning each day after doing my gossip binge, like I'll see what's happening like locally, I'll see what's happening nationally and I'll see how that, you know, can be turned into a story for us. And then, you know, that's that's just on the news side. And then when we do like uh, when I do the inside scoop restaurant coverage, it's basically stuff that I've known about. If I see a place opening or something and just kind of make sure I know what's happening. Is it happening today? Should I call this person? That kind of stuff. I think like what's fun about like the coffee kind of journalism community is that it's really small. So it's interesting to like see, I, I, you know, I have that same thought where if like I'll write an article and I'll be like, Oh man, like I feel really good about that article, but then I'll see somebody else like on their take on a similar topic. And I'm like, damn, they did way better than me. (laughs) Look, why is it that we have such low self-esteem? It doesn't take anything for me to, to, to knock me off. I'm the same way. I could do something and be like, man, that's a great story. And then if I see something similar, I'm like, damn, I should have done that. <laughs> yeah, all the time. I do that every time. <laughs> but I will say, you do incredible work, so you shouldn't feel that way. And I feel like every every story has its lane, right? Like, um, you know, we uh, people as much as as they read a a brand of news, like they'll be like, 
I only subscribe to the Chronicle, man, because I only like what they do. Or they'll be like, I only subscribe to the New York Times because I like what they do. That That's a normal thing. But also people buy into individual reporters now. Like you'll have um, you know reporters on staff that have their own following because people subscribe to the paper or to that outlet to get content directly from them because they care about what they have to say. Like people listen to you on podcasts because they care about what you have to say. And so I think... Um, I think that, you know, even though we get thrown off and we're like, damn, that story was way better than mine. I can't believe that. I think we should also remember that, like, you know, each story has its lane. Like, you know, we got everything's the way it's supposed to be. People will find your stuff and care about it. And some people won't. Is what it is. Did people reach out to you, not just for the four barrel story, but just in general, like, is there ever like moments of like appreciation that catch you off guard because sometimes I'll see an email and I have to remember these moments because they're the moments that like kind of keep fueling me because again I'm crippled with self-doubt at all times um (laughs) but like are there moments that kind of like yeah but there are like are there moments that like have surprised you that people have like seen a story and you're like oh man like I didn't think that that would have that kind of impact but it did oh Oh, for sure so (laughs) the funny thing about like newsroom about newspaper reporting is that there are no uh if you get an email, there are no in-between emails to us. Either people, and especially to me, because I, I, you know, I'll write um, a lot of uh, race and gender-based stories, and so there's no like lukewarm email where someone's like, you know, dear Mr. Phillips, uh, I read your story earlier today. Thanks for reporting it. I just want to say I disagree. Have a good day. That's never something I get. It's always, you know, you idiot or, you know, how'd you do this? Like it's, it's either that or it's really supportive. Now, uh, I'm used to, you know, the negative stuff just comes. I feel like everybody in our newsroom gets that. But, um, but I will say that it's been, I think we get more emails now, um, less, uh, less people being appreciative of individual stories, but more, people being appreciative of the direction of content that they're like, you know, you guys are really uh, looking at this, you know, through a unique lens and it makes it worth reading now. Like that's, those emails come in more now. And I think that's great. Cause that's, that's a, you know, that's a big picture thing, but that's, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. I remember way back in the day, like we, uh, especially during our political reporting with food, especially mine, um, the stories would get picked up by uh, drudge report, which, um, you know, it's like a right-leaning uh, news mm-hmm. aggregate site. And if that happens, you'll get a ton of readers, but you will get a ton of emails. <laughs> like, oh, God. But, yeah. No, it's – uh, yeah, the emails that we get about the direction of our content, about, like, doing good journalism and then being appreciative of the fact that we're looking at things and presenting it in a different light, that, that's what makes me really happy. I like those. Well, you're awesome. I'm so thrilled to finally get to like talk to you in real life. Yeah, no, I am too. You want to just keep talking for another hour? Like, well, yeah, we like, could do that. We could just keep complimenting like, each other. I mean, we like yeah. avoided it for, you know, like 40 minutes and that's fine. So um, what, what, what Netflix shows are you watching? What? Oh, <laughs> I just finished Killing Eve. Have you seen that? I have not. How good is that? Oh my God. So uh, I need to watch that. I, so wait, so, okay. Uh, I don't know if you're going to use this on the podcast. What kind of... Netflix shows do you watch, by the way? Uh, I, I'm i like a creature of habit. 
So yeah. I love watching the same thing over and over yeah. again. <laughs> right. So I've like been cycling through the Great British Bake Off again. Nice. Um, this is really nerdy. Um, I love Jeopardy. Like I do you really absolutely love Jeopardy. And I love seeing like tournament of champions because I love seeing like my favorite old competitors. <laughs> so, oh God. That's, that's a solid selection. I can't that was that. yeah, that was like that was really nerdy. But I, after I, I watched the Golden Globes, which I ne- I never do, and I was like, shit, there's so yeah. much good TV out there. So I was trying to. Oh watch- my god! Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. So sure. what are you what are you watching? Junk. I watch like trash TV shows. I watched recently. So there's this uh, show on Netflix called Santa Clarita Diet with uh, Drew Barrymore. Drew Bar- yeah, I binge watched that whole show. Drew Barrymore and uh, Timothy Oliphant. I don't know why. I thought that show was hilarious. Yeah, I can see. Well, those are both great actors. I know. See, I, maybe I should stop telling people what I watch. I feel like it's. <laughs> no, no, no one has like upstanding TV taste. Like that right. doesn't exist. No one's right. like, I only watch Hope Couture. No. Um, um, yeah, cool. I think, no, my next thing I really want to watch is um, the uh, assassination of Gianni Versace. Oh, American man. Story. Have yes. you seen it? No, I have not. I definitely want to see that. Yeah, that won a bunch of awards at the Golden Globes. I'm telling you, I, I literally watched the Golden Globes. I was with you. I was like, man, how much TV am I missing now? Yeah, Killing Eve, worth it. Is it really? Okay. Oh, God, All it's right. so good. Especially because, like, I mean, I'm I, I'm obviously sensitive to this. Like, seeing, like, women in, leadership, in, in, like, starring roles where it's not just, like, them talking about their boyfriends is really great. Right. So, um, yeah. and there is, like, this, like, very... Uh, interesting energy that like I've just never seen on TV before. The, uh, the, yeah. Well also Sandra O oh is super Amazing. dope. Yeah, no, I absolutely love her. I got, I got to watch this. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. It's only eight episodes. I'm totally down for that. I know. See, I watched it in a day and a half. See, I, oh, okay. You're with me. I'm definitely a Netflix binge watcher. Where I'll be like, good God, what happened to the last 72 hours? I know I'm a, uh, my my boyfriend's out of town right now, and mm-hmm. I'm just like I know it's awesome because <laughs> I get to watch exactly what I want. I don't, like yeah, I don't have to. That's that's the problem with having a partner is having to save shows for said partner. Because uh-huh. I was like, crap, I can't watch this when you're gone. I gotta wait. This sucks. I know. So Killing Eve was one that we had to watch together, and I made right. him like stay up before he left because I was like we're finishing this if you leave I'm going to watch this without you so we, we did that yeah, yeah true like that's just a fact right um but then I asked him I was like what shows can I watch without you <laughs> give me give me a list of what you wouldn't mind missing yeah so I think I'm gonna watch the Americans next you know I've watched a couple of episodes I need to get back into that I don't know why just like sometimes like if a show's I don't know what it is. Maybe I think there's like a sweet spot for seasons on a show that I haven't seen before that I'll dive mm-hmm. into. Like if it's like four or five, well, if it's like four, I'm like, oh yeah, and it's good. I'll knock it out on a, like you know on most of a weekend. But if it's like seven or eight, that's and too then, many. Yeah, then I get stuck, and then I find other stuff. It's just my attention span's too short. Yeah, no, I, I I I agree with you on that. I'm watching The Good Place right now, which is a oh, current TV show. Let's. I am down to talk about The Good Place. I, I love The Good Place so much. I absolutely love The Good Place. Also, I love people's like uh, 
So they have like hot takes on what the good place means and like diving into actual characters. By the way, I forgot how amazing uh, Ted Danson is. I didn't even know how amazing it was. I'd never seen Cheers before. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, my, uh, yeah, no, my, uh, that was something that my grandparents watched. But mm-hmm. he's like, yeah, I, I was just like, man, this guy, I, I forgot. And I obviously love Kristen Bell too. But Have you seen Veronica Mars? You know, I hate to say it. I have not. If you love your, if you love Kristen Bell. I love Veronica Mars. Yeah. 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 I, I feel bad. And, and you're not the first person to ask me that. Then I feel like a poser and I'm like, uh, no, I guess not. Well, cause it's like a fringe, like CW TV show. Like that was the best though. It was the best. And Veronica Mars is like peak. It's like perfection. If you like, did you have you ever seen party down? Yes. If you like Party Down, the same guy who made Party Down, and a lot of the same characters too, like Ken Marino's in it. Oh, Jane, okay. like Jane Lynch is in it. Yeah. Um, Adam Scott has like a little like they're all those characters are somehow in Veronica Mars at some point too, Adam, and obviously Kristen Bell's in there. Adam Scott's in Veronica Mars. I had no idea. Yeah, he plays a like a creepy teacher. Well, that kind of makes. How does Adam Scott play creepy so well? When I find him I so charming sometimes. I know. He's like my secret crush. Like every time I watch Parks and Recreation, my boyfriend's like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I am into this. I don't know what is happening, but I'm into it. I literally, I, yeah, I love Parks and Rec. The only thing I don't love about Parks and Rec is just how it ended. I feel like they didn't really know how to end the show. Yeah, that's true. But like, that's, I feel like that's true of most shows. Like, have you ever watched a show you're like, yeah, that ended like super well? Oh, no, I, I guess not. Yeah, I guess you're right. I can't think of a single show that I'm like, that that ending put a tight little bow on everything that I've watched before. And you're right. They kind of just put her out. Well, I guess once you get to like seven seasons, you're kind of like, well, what do we do to just kind of wrap this up? Because especially with yeah. like Parks and Rec, everybody got famous individually too. Right. And so it was like, you know, at some point she had to break it apart. I mean, hell, um, oh, oh my God. Chris Pratt went from goofy, adorable Andy Dwyer to being a, damn superhero in guardians of the galaxy so it's like i guess you have to i don't know maybe you have to figure out what to do who knows i think my favorite joke on parks and recreation is like when they start it's like from season four to season five and like chris pratt is clearly way fitter because he's been doing guardians of the galaxy (laughs) and their joke is like so you just stopped drinking beer (laughs) (laughs) that's it oh my god yeah no he was my yeah, I, I absolutely loved him. You remember Parks and Rec, the first season? Um, what was that guy's name? Uh, it was kind of like, um, it was Anne's love interest and Leslie's love interest. What was the guy's oh, name? Oh, Mark Brandanowitz. Yeah, yeah, Paul Schneider. Uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. What, so I feel like that the Paul Schneider Parks and Rec is a completely different show than the- Oh, I agree. Yeah, what happened? I wonder if there- I don't know. Yeah. Sometimes I like look at it and I'm like, did they just think Paul Schneider was like too plain looking? Like he wasn't beautiful enough to be on the show. That's kind of what I think it was. Like maybe he was just too middle of the road. I don't know. Cause then the show got like super goofy and I feel like that was its, uh, did you ever watch, not to jump around and stuff. Did you ever watch 30 rock? Yeah. Okay. So I feel like 30 rock started a certain way. I mean, it was still funny and like goofy, but the way it ended, I felt like was the real 30 rock. Like that just extremely quirky kind of goofy show. But yeah, yeah. I, I would agree with you on that. Yeah. Like 
I, I mean, there are a lot of parallels between 30 Rock and Parks and Recreation, and I think that, like, I, I feel like comedy is, like, it's best when it's a, it's a, it's most, like, absurd. I don't yeah. know. Like, yeah. That's what I loved about Parks and Recreation is that the jokes, like, at one point just, like, don't make any sense, and they're ridiculous, <laughs> and they're so fun. <laughs> it's the kind of show where a joke will happen, and then you'll laugh about that earlier joke, like, five minutes later while another exactly. joke is happening. It's like... Do you watch a lot of cooking shows too? Yeah. <laughs> I um I'm like a an Alton Brown like devotee. Oh my god. Yeah, no, my uh I, I completely understand. So you were um you were Alton Brown like early Alton Brown when he used to do like the really basic version of uh what was that? What? Good Eats. Good Eats, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. My dad hates Alton Brown. Why? Because Alton Brown gave him pointers on how to cook a turkey. And my dad used that recipe one Thanksgiving and destroyed his turkey. And he was like, damn you, Alton Brown. (laughs) (laughs) So to this day, he's like, I'm not listening to what he says. Poor guy. Well, have you seen that Alton Brown's doing the like Good Eats Reloaded where he like revisits old episodes and improves on it? Yeah, yeah. I heard about that. I Yeah, I I think that's going to be amazing. I know my my mom loves it. I know my mom's going to freak out. What else do you watch? Uh, cooking shows. I used to be, so, um, I was a huge, huge Anthony Bourdain fan. Um, so, and and that's not even technically like a cooking show, but I remember that was like, that was one of the reasons why I was so interested in food journalism because it was, I felt like if you pulled some of the segments where Anthony's just talking, like in the background and, um, and, uh, what do you, what do you call it? Uh, wrote it out when you um, trans- and you transcribed it. It would be one of the most beautiful passages you could possibly have about any place in any restaurant or any chef. Like his, I, yeah, no, uh, no reservations, parts unknown, uh, the layover. Like I was obsessed, absolutely obsessed. I've just started watching um, some episodes of Parts Unknown and I'm going to, I'm going to Europe in like three weeks nice. and I'm just, I'm literally just watching the episodes that like he goes, where he goes to like different places in Europe. And I'm like, okay, now I have to go there. Like, damn it. Yeah. Like now I have to incorporate this somehow, yep, but yep. it is, it is incredible to watch, especially like, I don't know. Anthony Bourdain was like kind of, I, I'm, I'm curious to kind of like hear your perspective, mm-hmm. just like being outside of coffee, mm-hmm. but like Anthony Bourdain, like loved shitting on coffee. Did he, he really? I did. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh wow. So like, he was always kind of like a problematic character in like the coffee industry. Interesting. Because it's, like, he's such a, like a great and amazing writer and he's so inspirational for so many people in terms of like looking at food, which like coffee people are like. Coffee people are going to be your number one people who go to restaurants. Your number one people who go to wine bars. Like anytime I go to like any sort of craft anything, like I see somebody I know. Right, right. right. So it's always interesting that like, yeah, that other way around doesn't really apply. Like David Chang is like very famously shit on coffee too. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, you know, so it's like I, that. You know, oh, go ahead. yeah, no, that that I, I didn't even realize that. But you know what? Like, I think the thing with Anthony Bourdain too is that um, he was you know incredibly insightful. But he could also be wildly dismissive. And I think if you have someone who's incredibly insightful, super smart, and is well-spoken, and they're dismissive of a topic, that's almost more painful than someone who kind of like uh, might bludgeon through a speech, like not really be that articulate, that shits on a topic. 
But Anthony Bourdain yeah. used to be dismissive, and I feel like that was, you know, that that's the kind of thing that's worse than anything else. I didn't, I, yeah, yeah, I didn't even realize that. Wow. All right. Well, yeah. There's this like Bon Appetit article. I I, I was thinking about it just because I revisited an article that I wrote where I cited it, and I was yeah. like, oh yeah, like the Twitter coffee Twitter lost their shit over this. <laughs> And it was just something about how, like, he doesn't want his coffee served by, like, a hipster with a man bun. And I'm like, have you been to a <laughs> coffee been- shop? <laughs> yeah. I never even thought about that. Oh, my God. You were opening my eyes to a whole new part of the stuff that he used to talk about. I never realized that. And that's why I think why, like, Alton Brown is kind of, like, another one of our, like, coffee heroes. Because Alton Brown is, like, all about coffee. Like, he, like, treats it really well. Like, his episodes are, like, not great about coffee. Like, he's clearly still learning. Yeah. But he's, like, he'll investigate, like, where the good places to go are. And, like, he'll go. Yeah. So, well, that brings me back to, like, the coffee industry in the Bay Area. I I, I know we you tried to end this, like, 20 minutes ago. Sorry. but No, no. This is great. One, I, I can edit. <laughs> <laughs> one extra thing. Like, so what do you... Um, what do you want to see in the coffee industry, like moving forward, like this year, next year? Like, what's I think? Yeah, I get I get discouraged like pretty easily. So, yeah. like this year, um, this year just kind of sucked. Like mm. it's it sucked. Like this whole four. I mean, it was great that the reporting on four barrel happened. It was great that people were able to sue and like get the result that they wanted. But it was also shitty to see people like completely missed the point mm-hmm, like i got mm-hmm. so many like people telling me like oh but who's gonna buy all that coffee that four barrels sourced i'm like someone's gonna fucking buy it right. like it's fine right, right and like people just like kind of missing the point like something that like i've been trying to figure out a way to explore and i really don't know how is to like explore more of the financial repercussions of sexual assault right right yeah because like i've gotten a number of emails from people who used to work at four barrel who don't anymore and like they say things like well, obviously I'm not going to work at four barrel anymore, but like I got paid this much an hour there. And like, I got this, this and that there. Like, how am I supposed to rectify like my moral beliefs with the fact that like I cannot make a living anymore? Right. Right. Well, there, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's a, um, yeah, that's a complicated topic. I feel like the, so there's this, uh, there's this restaurateur, uh, Mike Isabella, uh, who, is he in, I think he's in Washington. I think he's in DC. Yeah. 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 And so, uh, yeah, no, he, so, you know, he had his sexual harassment stuff come out and then like last month he filed for chapter 11. No, no, he filed for chapter 11, like in September, I think, or something like that. And then, uh, yeah, then ended up closing all, you know, his businesses and stuff like that. I feel like when people, um, want to see what can happen financially to a restaurant, if, diners and investors uh take notice of issues surrounding a business then that might be the the one of the top examples honestly um yeah because no that fell apart in stages for sure that's funny that you mentioned mike isabella because i just interviewed a pretty mystery yeah yeah who's on the same season of Top Chef. And like one of the, one of these like memories I have of that season of Top Chef, because obviously I watch every cooking show live, um, is Mike Isabella trying to get Preeti's, the pronunciation of Preeti's name right. And he's like, Purdy or Purdy or whatever her name is. And I'm like, <laughs> I just thought that that was such like a weird like illustration of like now fast forward 10 years and like Preeti is amazing and killing it. And like, is like an amazing advocate for like 
people of color in the restaurant industry. And then like Mike Isabella's empire is falling yeah, apart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, I don't know. Like I, I feel, I feel like I'm sometimes like the wrong person to ask about the coffee industry. Cause I'll, I'll say negative stuff about it. But at the same time, like oh, every industry must be plagued with this. Like I have to believe that <laughs> like, it can't just be our shitty industry. Like so many people complain about like not being paid appropriately. And it's like, how are, how are employers getting away with this? Like I did a story in August about a woman who realized that she was the only person like on her staff who had never gotten a raise. And she was the only black woman on staff. And it's like, that's incredible. Right. Like, and it's like how, and then I, you know, I tried to do my due diligence with them and I've reached out to the owners and they were like, they were so upset that like anyone could ever accuse them of being racist. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, uh, yeah, it's an ugly word. I, I understand it, but like you can see where like your actions kind of make you need to examine like what your practices yeah, are. Yeah, well, it's and they totally shut down. It's you know I, I think one of uh and maybe maybe that maybe that movement is building up like right now because I know for the restaurant world it took a couple of years for anyone to um, you know take these complaints seriously and like. I don't know. It, it, it just took a while for it to to gain traction. And so uh, this week I wrote this story about um, Nick Cho from uh, Wrecking mm-hmm. Ball. Yeah. And so Nick has that new place in Berkeley and, you know, his mindset is like creating this kind of fourth wave coffee movement where, you know, it's uh, placing an emphasis on like uh, diverse, d- diversity and inclusiveness. And, you know, it's still, it, it's still an idea that, um, you know, I, I know he's kind of like kicking around and trying to figure out how to hone it, but uh, his heart's in the right place. And so we talk about this in the newsroom too, that maybe the best way to go about um, seeing what change will happen in the business is uh, is to look at the new projects that are opening, right? Like not the longstanding ones. Mm-hmm. And so if we have, so maybe in the coming year, maybe that'll be something that'll happen and there'll be new um coffee brands that launch that have um or in the coming years that launch that have these kind of uh you know we're going to ensure that our workplace is healthy non-toxic it's fair it's uh there's racial equity etc you know we treat women employees well like maybe that'll be built into their foundation and that could be a sign that you know i don't know you never know i don't i don't want to predict but who knows you can hope yeah. If you're still listening to this episode, then congratulations and thank you for listening to me and Justin talking about our favorite Netflix shows. Um also very interested in hearing what your favorite Netflix shows are, but we had an amazing discussion about what journalism means, what happened at Four Barrel. And I really hope that you guys enjoyed this episode because I'm still kind of fan uh, fanning out about Justin. It's been really great to see his reporting on Four Barrel, and I'm grateful that he was able to spend time with us. You can read Justin Phillips on SF Chronicles website. All of his articles are absolutely outstanding. He examines food, race, and identity in the San Francisco Bay Area. So check him out. And thank you again for listening. Bye, friends.
Fosperista is made by me, Ashley Rodriguez, in collaboration with Good Beer Hunting, which is an industry-leading design studio, editorial platform, and podcast examining all the ways we look at the things that we eat and drink. You can check out more at goodbeerhunting.com. Seriously, their stories are incredible. My favorite series right now is the Humanity and Hospitality series that they've been running for the past couple of months, examining different ways that we look at people in the service industry. Special thanks to Jesse Raub and Jordan Stalling. Also special thanks to our music contributors, the band Lost in the Sun. You've made this podcast sound incredible. I'm just looking for a better day.